This may be really bad form, but I want to start out by reading to you what is a very sad, discouraging essay. As I read this, I want you to think about it and also try to imagine who might be the author of these words. Here it goes. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. Age creeps upon them. Humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned into aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they have left no sign that they have existed, a world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Then another myriad takes their place and copies all they did and goes along the same profitless road and and vanishes as they vanished, to make room for another and another and a million other myriads to follow the same arid path through the same desert and accomplish what the first myriad and all the myriads that came after it accomplished, nothing. As I said, that's, that's a pretty discouraging outlook on life, wouldn't you agree? Uh, whoever wrote that had a very discouraged take on our existence here on earth. Who do you think wrote that anyway? Well, you may have heard it before because it's a somewhat famous quote of Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote those words. Now, Mark Twain uh, is better known for his wit and his humor. Uh, Stories like uh, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are more commonly remembered from Mark Twain. But Mark Twain was also an atheist. And uh, here in the essay that we've just read, Mark Twain gives his very discouraging view of life because the view he expressed there is the view of life without God, right? Isn't that what he was saying? Uh, it's really sad. It's totally depressing. I want you to think with me for a few minutes about these consequences of unbelief. What are some of the consequences we face when we refuse to accept the reality of God's existence. We want to talk about the consequences of unbelief this morning for just a few minutes. Thank you for being here today. What a gorgeous Lord's Day morning we have in Middle Tennessee. And what a wonderful privilege we have to be able to be together, to worship God, to glorify Him, and to encourage one another. And those are our motives, those are our purposes in assembling this morning. We're glad that you're here to be a part of it. We have visitors with us today. We're glad that you've come our way. We hope you come back every time you have a chance to be here. And, of course, as we always say, we want you to ask any questions you have about what you hear or see as we assemble this morning to worship God. We thank everybody for being here this morning. We we certainly pray that we'll be able to leave here saying it was good to spend our time together. We, we sure hope that God will be glorified by what we do. What about the consequences if there is no God? Well, I want to suggest to you, first of all, if there is no God, then you really are unimportant. You you really are important. You just Actually, if there is no God, then you're just sort of an assemblage of matter. And not a very big assemblage of matter at that. When you consider the vastness of the universe, 
You are less than a speck of matter in the vastness of this universe. In fact, the bigger you become, the bigger you begin to realize that the universe is, the less significant you become because you are just an infinitesimally small speck of matter in this vast universe. You really are unimportant. Furthermore, if there is no God, uh, then you have no purpose. There is really no reason for your existence, no purpose for your being. Whatever it is that you may achieve, let's say you became a world-class athlete, or maybe you became a high-ranking business professional, very successful, maybe a high-ranking politician, and you achieve all kinds of fame and fortune and whatever. I want to tell you, if any of that happened to you, and the chances of that happened to you are very remote, of course, but if any of it did, whatever you may achieve is totally without purpose or significance. If you have no God, then you are without a standard to live by. If there is no God, there is no absolute standard of right or wrong to serve as a, as a guidance for your life. Um, you have no standard to live by, but you know what else? Nobody else does either. And so, uh, each man becomes a, a law to himself. There are no sure answers. In fact, in fact, if there is no God, the answers to the question change with time and circumstance, don't they? What might seem right today might be totally wrong tomorrow, and vice versa. Certainly, if there is no God and no standard to live by, then a, a, a world of low morality is guaranteed, right? If there is no God. And let me suggest to you, if there is no God, then you absolutely have no hope. And in that essay we just read from Mark Twain, that was sort of the most striking element of it, wasn't it? No hope, no prospect for the future. If there's no God, then everything there is is what you see right now. This is it. This is all there is. There is no more. Uh, there's no hope. There's no comfort in living. Certainly no comfort in dying. There's nothing to look forward to beyond this lifetime, you just get old and you die. There's nothing, as we said, to provide purpose for life, certainly no encouragement uh, in the midst of all this vanity that is going on around us if there is no God. Now, you might think of some things to add to that list, but I want to suggest to you that when you look at that list, that's really a discouraging, depressing outlook. Would you agree? Every man without God has to accept these miserable realities. That's what Mark Twain was writing about when he wrote that essay we read at the outset. Uh, in fact, he's not the only one who thought that. As I was reading that, did it come to mind maybe some of the things you've read in the book of Ecclesiastes? We're about to begin a study of the book of Ecclesiastes this Wednesday night. But King Solomon had some of those almost exact takes on life without God. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes back and forth between viewing life without God and then viewing life with God. But when he was viewing life without God, he said things like this, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Without God, that's true. He said in chapter 4, beginning verse 2, Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he that... Better is he 
than both they which have not yet been and who have not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. King Solomon sort of had that same depressing outlook on life that Mark Twain expressed when he thought about a life without God. So, is that where we stay? Is that all we can say about it? Well, there is a better way. And we don't want to leave you with this discouraging thought of life. Uh, we want to suggest that all of that is resolved when we view life with God. And so, we want to spend a few minutes talking about some things we gain by believing that there is a God. Now, we're not going to go this morning into the proofs and evidences for the existence of God. We're not going to talk about the Bible as the provable, inspired Word of God. We're not going to talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God and the evidence, the proof that that's true. Now, we engage in those kind of studies a lot. And so, please understand, we're not going to be uh, engaging in a, a study of those evidences this morning, although we think the evidences are abundant, overwhelming. There's just completely compelling proof that there is a God in heaven. Jesus is His Son. The Bible is His inspired Word. We believe those things absolutely. What we're going to say is because we do believe that evidence and we have come to that position of faith, because we do believe in God, what are the, some of the things that we gain by that faith? Well, actually, we gain just the opposite of what Mark, Mark Twain and King Solomon were complaining about. When we believe in God, then we begin to realize that we are important in the grand scheme of things. Now, we want to talk for a minute here about the what I think is a very flawed self-esteem movement. We've, we've talked about that a lot and, and mentioned that the Bible does not support the faulty notion of artificially elevated self-esteem that a lot of pop psychologists have embraced and but now, interestingly, are beginning to abandon. We're not talking about a, a, a false sense of self-esteem uh, where you you ignore your problems and and just imagine that you are more wonderful than anybody else. We're not talking about the artificially inflated self-esteem movement. But what we are talking about here is that you are important in the sense that you are made in the image of God. You are the highest of His creation. Uh, we see that in Genesis 1, when the creation of man and woman was the culminating act of God's creation in Genesis 1. The fact of the matter is, the bigger you see the universe... And, and, and the immensity of the things God created, and then to realize that He created you in His image and gave you an eternal soul, you begin to see that God has made you important in all of this creation that He made. In Psalm chapter 8, beginning verse 3, the psalmist said, Psalm 8, beginning verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You see what the psalmist is saying here? When I, when I envision the enormity of creation, then I think, why would you think about lowly me? But you did. That's what the psalmist is saying there, right? And so we, he's, he's, he's praising God for the fact that the God who could create all of this was mindful of us, each one of us. We're important to Him in the sense that He provided for us, both physically but especially spiritually, through the redemptive work of His Son, Jesus Christ. God loves us. That's an amazing thing. Uh, we are important to Him. And He cares for us. And He loves us. In First Peter chapter 1, 
verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. God cared for us enough that He would redeem us from our sin uh, with the blood of His own Son. And so, uh, yes, you are important. Not this faulty notion of artificially inflated self-esteem. And not even to suggest that we are worth or worthy of what God has done for us, because that is not not the case. But we are important because God is a great, gracious, and merciful God and has provided for us all wonderful things. We are important in that sense. So you see the contrast here. Without God, we're really unimportant, just a speck of meaningless matter in a vast universe. But when we realize there is a God, then we have this all-powerful creator of the enormous universe who looks down on each individual one of us, who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us, and especially who made redemption possible, salvation, a, a relationship with Him through sending His own Son to die for our sins. We're important to God. Furthermore, if there's a God, then we have a purpose for living. The atheist does not, really. This is one of the things that I'm always kind of stunned whenever I have the occasion to speak to someone who's an atheist. I've even asked some of them, what's the purpose of your living here? Why are you here? What's your purpose? And after you're dead and gone, what will be the meaning of it all? And I don't think they really have a good answer to that. But we have an answer, don't we? We have a purpose. Uh, We have an answer to some of the life's most vital questions. You know, uh, sometimes it's hard to get the the whole picture when you just have fragments of information. You ever been in that situation where you heard, heard a bit of information, but you didn't hear it in the broader context of things? And maybe you, you, because you only heard part of the story, you jumped to a faulty conclusion. That, that, that could be the case with us, but thankfully it's not because God has revealed to us our purpose and He's given us the answer to, to the great challenging questions of life. Uh, for instance, uh, the question, why are you here? Well, the reason why we are here, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, is because God desired to bring many sons to glory. In other words, he, he wants our eternal well-being. We're here in anticipation of eternity. He wants to bring many sons to glory. Our purpose is not just the mundane affairs of day-to-day living. Our purpose is to glorify God and to join Him in eternity. Why does the world continue? Why, why, why does this keep going on and gone? Remember Mark Twain said, one myriad dies and they're immediately forgotten, and another myriad comes along and takes their place, and a million more myriads after them, all following the same path through the same arid path through this miserable desert. That's what Mark Twain said. Why does this keep going on? Well, the reason why it's going on and continues to go on is because God is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish. God allows this to go on, to continue. Now, there'll be an end to that, ultimately, But in God's loving, long-suffering nature, He continues generation after generation to come along. He's long-suffering. He wants to bring many sons to glory. And God's love is the manifestation, is manifested in all of that. Well, when's it going to end anyway? Well, 
We don't know, but we know it will. Because in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, it says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So, what about you? Where are you going? Why are you here? Where are you going? Well, where you're going is to death and judgment, right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it's appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. Uh, we've been moving toward that ever since we were born, right? All men do. We have an appointment with death and judgment. And so our purpose then is as was read to us earlier from Ecclesiastes 12. Roger read verses 13 and 14. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Our purpose here is to fear God and keep His commandments. We're going to begin, as I said earlier, this study of Ecclesiastes this week. And Solomon went through a long search for meaning in life, for purpose, for, for, for fulfillment, for satisfaction. He was, as we will point out, very likely the wealthiest man who ever lived in the history of the world. He certainly had the capacity to try every single imaginable thing to gain meaning and purpose for his life. And as he pursued worldly things, he just grew increasingly frustrated. But when he came to the end of it all, this very diligent search for meaning in life, he concluded, our purpose here is to fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. We can gain from his story. We can gain from what God has revealed in His Word. We know why we're here. We know what our purpose for existence is. And again, that's contrasted with the sad outlook of an atheist. What about this standard to live by? The atheist does not have one, but we do. Have you ever thought about the importance of having a standard to live by? Um, with a standard to live by, we have things that are sure and unchangeable. We have right answers that don't change with time and circumstance. It's always right to do right. Uh, it's not going to be that today it's one way and tomorrow that might change and you ought to be doing something else. We have things sure and unchangeable. We have a, a really legitimate basis for dealing with our fellow man. How we relate to one another is revealed in God's Word, and the right way to do so is told to us there. Uh, uh, the Word of God, of course, is that standard that we live by. In John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. You know, to the extent that men will live by that word, our lives are made better and the world is improved. I think I've told you before about uh, an experience a number of years ago when we were teaching in Moscow, Russia, and sharing with the Russians the, tr the simple truths of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in the course of that study, these Russians, who were, of course, raised as atheists, they were trained to be atheists from birth. And as those simple truths of the Sermon on the Mount were shared with them, the question was asked, what? Asked, in other words, here was a question posed to these people who had been raised as atheists. What if everyone lived this way? And they immediately said, what a wonderful world it would be. Things would be made better, right, if you had such a standard to live by, and people did, and we do. 
we have this absolute standard to live by. Well, what else? Again, you could expand this list, I think, but one of the things we have to add to our advantages for believing in God is, as, as contrasted to the atheist, we have a basis for hope. Have you had a bad day? Have you experienced a gloomy week? Have you had a terrible year? Sometimes those things happen, don't they? Well, what keeps you going anyway? Uh, if you've had a bad day, a, a, a terrible week, a, a horrible year, what keeps you going? Why do you keep trying? Why do you keep moving forward? I want to believe, I want to tell you that the person who believes in God is sustained through the difficult times of life because we have a hope in something that is not seen. Uh, we have a bright and glorious hope of life beyond the grave. I gotta tell you, I don't know how the atheist keeps going. If I run into all, if I'm an atheist and I run into all kind of trouble and disappointments and discouragements, if my life is just not working out the way I want it to work out, I don't understand how an atheist keeps on going. You know, why not just end it all? It's not going anywhere. But I tell you, even when we face some of the hardest difficulties of life, what keeps us going is we know this this life is not all there is. There is something beyond the grave. There is this hope. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that which, that within the veil. Uh, an anchor for the soul. Here's something to hold on to. This is something steady. and doesn't move away from us. We can stay attached to that hope, uh, which is called an anchor of the soul. In Psalm 46, beginning verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The psalmist there, was he wasn't talking literally when he said the earth be removed or the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea. He wasn't talking literally there. But he was talking about the fact that sometimes in life it can seem that bad. It can seem that things are going that terribly for us. But we have God as our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so, uh, with God in the picture, we have a capacity to put all these storms of life into their proper perspective. Notice what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That, that speaks to this hope that we have. We have a hope, and I don't know whether there's an extra letter on the word hope there. We have this hope for the soul. Life with God is so clearly better than any alternative that life without God can suggest. So, what do you got here? We got two roads suggested, two paths that you might follow. A path of life without God or a path with life with God. You know, before you start down a road, you want to make sure it heads in the direction that you want to go, right? When we're driving in our car, when we come to an intersection, we make our choice because we want to pick the path that takes us where we want to go. You want to turn the wrong way, turn the wrong way, you'll end up not where you want to go. We want to take the road that takes us where we want to go, right? Well, I would suggest to you spiritually uh, the same thing is true. Which road do you want to be on? 
Where do you want to end up? Which of these two roads do you want to follow? I think the choice is an obvious one, right? The choice is an obvious one. Well, as I look over the audience this morning, my guess is there's not a single atheist in our assembly this morning. If you are, we're glad you're here because I think we very certainly have to consider the things that we said this morning and the arguments that we presented. So if there's an atheist in our assembly, we're glad that you were able to hear a discussion of these things we think are so vital. But my guess is there aren't any atheists in our assembly this morning. That if we went around the room and asked every single person, do you believe that there's a God in heaven? They would say yes. So have we wasted our time with a lesson like this this morning? Have we, have we wasted our time by talking to the concept of atheism when there aren't any atheists present? I would suggest to you, no, this is not a waste of time. Uh, we need, those of us who believe in God need to be fortified in our faith and the value of our faith in God. And so it's good for that reason. But also, it's good for those of you who believe in God, but who haven't really acted upon that faith in God to consider these things. You know, it's, it's one thing to say you believe in God and, and maybe even to desire the benefits of that faith that we tried to describe in our lesson. But just acknowledging the existence of God is not enough. You must do something with your faith. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James says, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You may deceive yourself in the fact that you believe in God, but if you haven't acted upon it, if you haven't done what the word says, you're just deceiving yourself. First John 2, beginning verse 3, Herein do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Have you obeyed the will of God? Uh, have you responded to the things that he teaches us to do in his word? It's not enough to just say, I believe in God. That's an obvious important beginning place. But you've got to act upon that faith. What's your situation this morning? If you've never obeyed the simple gospel plan of salvation, we encourage you that you must do this and not delay your obedience. Having heard the truth and believing it, will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? If you're a Christian already, but you've not been living faithfully, that doesn't make sense. There is a God in heaven. You said you believed in Him. In time past, you wanted to be His child. You wanted to be in a covenant relationship with Him. But now you've not been living that way. You need to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help at all, let us know while we stand and sing this song. It's too long.